This is The Visible Hand, a podcast about organizations, economics, and management. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Ricard Hill, an associate professor at the Smith School of Business of Queen's University in Ontario, Canada. Today, we are going to talk about his paper, Relationships Under Stress, Relational Outsourcing in the U.S. Airline Industry After the 2008 Financial Crisis, which is joint work with me, Ojin Kim, and Giorgio Sanarone, and is forthcoming at Management Science. Ricard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jordi. Thanks for having me. Ricard, can you start by telling us in a couple of minutes, what does this paper do? In this paper, what we do is we look at patterns of how relationships, outsourcing relationships, end. In order to investigate this issue, we build up a model of relational contracting between legacy carriers and their outsourcing partners. And within that model of relational contracting, we draw uh, testable implications that then we actually take to data in the time before and after the 2008 financial crisis. Okay, so a core a component of this paper is, as you said, relationships or relational contracts. Can you tell us what is a relational contract? A relational contract is an agreement between two parties that cannot be enforced by a third party. In, in this case, a third party would be a court of law or an enforcement agency of some sort. So in some sense, the word contract is not super accurate there. It's better to think in the way that you describe as an agreement or, as you write in the paper, an informal understanding between the partners. Exactly. All. You know, instead of saying relational contracting, many in many occasions, people use the word self-enforced agreement, right? In the sense that the two parties know that there's an agreement, there's a a verbal contract, so to speak, and that they, both of them have the best of their interests to actually make sure that that contract is actually fulfilled. So the way in which this agreement will actually resemble a contract is that both parties are expected to take actions that benefit the other party. That's one way to think about it. That is, yes. of course, you know, something that you will share with a contract, just that enforcing, making these uh, actions take place is not something that can be trusted to somebody else. I, I want to be clear that in the in the empirical relational contracting literature, there are people like like me that is is actually studying the the incidence and strength and novelty of relational contracting in developed economies, in industries that are technological that that have a state or a court of law that they can actually go in case of a breach of an agreement. But a part of the a part, a second part of this literature is also looking at the, the impact of relational contracting in countries where courts don't actually work, right? And in that in those cases, you still have parties writing down literally, uh, writing down stuff on a piece of paper. That's what you and I would actually agree that that looks like a contract. But both parties know that it's impossible for them to take that piece of paper to a court of law, or even the case that it's possible for them. It takes years and years for that judge or for that third party to actually make a ruling. And at that point, the, the relationship and the actual actions that needed to be taken are actually have expired or they're poised. Let me give you an example of our relation and see whether this idea of a relational contract seems to apply to this case, more or less. 
So imagine that I hire a plumber to come and fix my boiler and he can do like a good job or a terrible job, but I cannot contract on the quality of the job for either of the reasons that you have just said. Imagine also that I can renege on paying him even after he has done a good job and he has little recourse, especially maybe because it's not worth going to court for a small sum and everything. So then the question is, if I hire him, why would the plumber put effort into doing a good job? And here, this self-enforcing element that you are describing will have to do with the fact that if the boiler breaks down a month after the plumber came, the plumber knows that next year, whenever I need the boiler to be serviced again, I will not hire him. In the same way, if the plumber does a good job and I don't pay him, then I know that I cannot hire that plumber. Maybe I live in a small village and I, I'm going to run out of plumbers very quickly, right? It is expectation that we are going to continue this relation in the future that is creating that self-enforcing element that you were referring to. Is that correct? It's correct. It's the expectation of future rents coming from you, from either party, actually fulfilling the promise that was actually made. In your particular example, one could think is if the plumber does a terrible job, the plumber is not only losing my business, he's actually losing the business of everybody I know. So in a sense, those are our future rents. And in the case of me not paying, sure, the plumber is going to tell everybody in his or her trade that I don't pay my bills. But also, uh, chances are is that the plumber is going to come looking for me in the street. And that's another way of self-enforcing that agreement, right? So, But, but you're totally right. That's one way of thinking about that. Okay, so I put this example in order to get to something that I think is going to be important later on, which is that now imagine that I am a tourist in that village. So now I need a plumber, but the expectation that I will be able to give future business to that planner is much lower because I may never come back to the village or with low livelihood or something. So now if I ask a small job that requires a small effort from the plumber, then he may still be willing to put effort because there is still some small chance of that repeated business. But if I'm asking something really, really big, then the enforceability or the self-enforceability of this arrangement does not work as well because the promise of future business is not sufficient to compensate for the unenforceable effort that I'm requesting right now from the plumber. So that's that's totally right. I, I would also anticipate that if I, you know, if I go somewhere and I rent a Airbnb for three weeks and, and for whatever reason I'm at, you know, I'm responsible of fixing that and I call in a plumber, uh, the plumber, if the plumber doesn't know me or doesn't actually, you know, knows that I'm going to, you know, uh, leave town after a while, chances are that he will show up with a formal contract that will make things a little more heavy because now I have to sign, I have to read this contract. I no longer, I no longer rely on that sort of repeated interaction nature of the of the transaction and uh, you know the fact that I write a contract means that I I now have a piece of paper that this person is can actually take to a judge if I decide not to pay and similarly in 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 my you know I, I would benefit from the fact that I have a contract in case the job is not well done I can go back and I said I did this I asked I to pay and uh... so you're talking about a setting in which there is the alternative of actually having formal contracts but imagine that there was no alternative yeah what I meant to say is that what follows from there is that the present discounted value that the relationship has for both parties is going to determine yes. the maximum range of the efforts that this relational contract can expect from the two parties exactly right like that will be 
In the case of a tourist, we cannot demand a lot because the, you know, that present discounted value is not as high. In the case of a long-term resident that is going to create out of future business, exactly. then we can expect or the, the contract, the informal agreement can expect a higher level of effort, correct? Yeah, I think so. I think that's correct. Okay. So you were talking earlier in describing briefly your paper about the fact that the setting of this paper is in the airline industry and specifically the US airline industry. Can you tell us what are the main features of this industry and why this is a good setting to study relational contracts? First of all, this is an industry where uh, governance is super important, right? And so why is governance important is because airlines plan their networks in a way so that they can take people from point A to point C, most likely going through an intermediate point B. And if uh, there's good weather and there's no congestions and no airplane actually uh, breaks down, this is supposed to be pretty easy. It's not. I'm oversimplifying. It's a good extremely complex problem that airlines undertake every day. But if it, everything goes well, it's it's supposed to be easy. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we all had those beautiful days where we go to the airport, everything's on time, and we arrive to place in time. When it rains, that becomes an issue. Why is it an issue? Is because, you know, in the States, we would actually be calling the FAA. In different countries, there's going to be a, a different transportation authority. Uh, when it rains, the number of airplanes that can actually land per minute safely, it actually drops, right? And so there's calls, there's this thing called the ground delay program that where the FAA will actually come in and say, well, it, it it's raining, it's, the weather is not great. Instead of landing 60, 70 airplanes per hour, we're now going to have 30, 40, right? And what does that do? That actually creates a clock in the system. Now, why am I saying all this? When this clock is created, what uh, does is that airlines have to re-optimize their initial plan, okay? And so when they re-optimize, if they don't rely on anybody else, if they, it's just them, they, they can do it. But when they rely on outsourcing partners, then they need to sort of go off the letter of the contract to sort of adjust to these short-term problems, right? Why is uh, the airline industry a good... Uh, empirical setting to look at relational contracting well number one you have lots and lots of markets right philadelphia new york is a market even though it's a short market it's a short uh, uh, new york san francisco is another market so you have a lots and lots and lots of markets uh, number two there's uh, a very short number of airlines and there's a very short number of potential outsourcing partners which basically means that when you have a very stable number of actors in an industry, chances are that relationships over time are being built. And number three, you have that the legacy carriers are not only just doing things themselves, which is actually vertical, what we would call vertical integration to a certain degree, they're actually outsourcing a lot, which basically means that we have a written contract, we have an occurrence that hits the operations of the airlines, the needs of the relational action that uh, will help the legacy carrier or the, the national carrier, and uh, we have relationships being built. And with all that, we have basically all the ingredients to start asking the question, how do relational contracts actually uh, help the governance of airlines and their performance? So just to be clear about the elements that the airline industry contains are the basic elements of the relational contract type of issues. The, the two parties 
the same way that I was describing the plumber and me, yep. here the two parties will be the legacy carriers or the majors, as you call them in the paper, and the regionals. Yep. And the idea is that the mayors and the regionals, they interact with each other through formal contracts. And these formal contracts cover other things like who is going to travel from what city to what city, what is the, the who's going to get the revenue from the clients, who's going to bear the cost, how are they going to compensate with each other. But there are some things that are important that cannot be contracted upon. And here Excellent. is where you were referring to, there can be weather shocks that imply that the landing or taking off slots need to be reallocated. And this requires that they are cooperating with each other, the same way that the plumber has to solve the problem and I need to pay the plumber. That will be the actions, no? The, the reallocation exactly. of slots will be the actions that they are supposed to undertake. Exactly. So just to put some color in what you, and what you help me describe here, the legacy carriers, the American Airlines, the United Airlines, the big carriers, they outsource a diversion of, of flights. They use something called a capacity purchase agreement because literally what the airlines are actually doing is they're buying capacity, air, airplane capacity to operate in these routes that they decide to outsource. Now, these particular contracts, they pay a flat fee, meaning that they, you know, it doesn't matter if the, if the airplane is full or the airplane is basically completely empty and is flying just because they need to be in another airport at a certain time. The, uh, if, the, if the flight takes place, they have to pay the outsourcing partner. So basically what happens here, that the, that the major carrier takes care of all the sales and they collect all the revenues and the outsourcing partner, the regional, as you call it, but I... I I always have issues calling it regional because then people start thinking of Southwest and JetBlue and these guys are not at all in the picture here. Then the regional basically takes care of everything that has to do with operations, the crew, the, the pilots, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? So, and one important thing to say here is that a major and a regional may have an agreement with each other that covers not just one route, but many routes, correct? This is exactly. a kind of like really critical for, exactly. for your study. This, this the purchase agreements, they're, uh, they're agreements that govern more than one route. In a sense, a regional airline will have 100 airplanes and they will enter an agreement with a legacy carrier that it's perhaps to actually fly 70 or 80 routes. And the, the agreement is basically governing all the routes that they are agreeing on. It, this is not uh, an agreement per route, per day. No, this is, tends to be quarter or yearly or multi-year agreements for a certain number of routes within the same contract. We have this industry, mayors and regionals are engaged in these long-term cooperation agreements. Some things, as you said, are governed by the formal contracts, but critically, the willingness to exchange the slots in order to react to adverse weather events is not and cannot be. And I presume that there, the, the regional specifically, they will be willing to sacrifice some of their slots whenever it is snowing or whatever, because by doing so, they protect the future value of their relation with the majors. That will be the main region that governs regional contracts here. One thing here is important is that 
even though even though so for example one of the biggest one of the biggest regionals is called Skywest right and Skywest flies for United even though every single every single passenger in a Skywest flight has bought their ticket out of a United website or out of a, out of United when the bad weather hits United does not have rights on the operation on the actual operation of that flight that Skywest is operating what does this mean this means that as you said when United is actually lacking flights and they actually need a flight, they, they would actually want SkyWest to change their operations in order to benefit them so that they can actually land uh, their airplanes. SkyWest is basically thinking, well, according to the contract, if I don't operate, if I don't actually fly right now, I'm going to lose the flat fee that comes with operating. So when they give this away, they're actually, as you said, thinking of, well, but I want to be in good standing with United. Why? Because in the future, this means longer contracts, more routes, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and that's the trade-off. That's the relational trade-off that happens every time that there is uh, bad weather and the operations need to be re-optimized. Okay, so this seems like a re- very like a stable kind of relation between these parties. You know, I call it stable because. It obviously relies on the fact that both parties are forward-looking and they are anticipating these rents that they can get from the future relation and so on. But you have something in your title called after the 2008 financial crisis, which kind of seems to be breaking the stability of these uh, long-standing arrangements. Why is the 2008 financial crisis relevant here? In order, in order for these relational contracts between major airlines and uh, and regional airlines to be self enforced, there's gotta be future revenues that the regional airlines are actually looking forward to. One of the things that happened uh, after 2008 is that a bunch of basically people stopped going on vacation. People, you know, some of the companies start re-optimizing their visits. You know, it was not, it was no longer that easy to actually get on an airplane and, and go go places. All that just meant that there were less revenue to be made in the next few years. And so what that means is that uh, all those relationships that depended that depended on the future, and remember, there's discounting here. So like the next two, three years matter more than the, what the next something happening 20 years from now. So a lot of these uh, promises were no longer self-enforced because there was not enough revenue in the relationship to sustain those uh, those uh, those agreements. So now I'm a regional and I'm asked to you know, fly a particular route and I'm thinking, okay, well, the cost is I'm not going to get that fee. The benefit is whatever I get from the major in the future. But wait a second, that fee that I'm getting is not worth that much anymore. So that's where now I don't have the incentive to go along with that request anymore. And that informal agreement breaks. This is what you call the in the in the paper the first Boston effect, correct? Yes. After a famous case from the 80s about you know yes. an investment bank. And so the idea there is that because the the major airlines anticipate the fact that some of the promises that they were actually made are no longer sustainable, the major airlines sort of re-optimize the the network of routes that they decide to uh, that they decide to outsource to each one of their outsourcing partners. So re-optimize is something that at this point I don't quite understand. My intuition, given everything that we have discussed so far, is that because of this anticipation, the mayors will say, okay, this agreement with this regional is not self-enforcing anymore. Let me look for an alternative solution. Maybe I will vertically integrate or I will look for, you know, 
somebody else. But you have in the in the paper an argument as to why there is a certain amount of optimization, in particular with respect to the routes that they are engaged in together, that allows the agreement to continue between the two parties, even if in a significantly narrower scope. Uh, what is this argument? Well, the argument is that if I, if we look at 2006 and we look at the at the optimal, let's assume that it's optimal allocation of routes to different partners. The optimal allocation of routes to different partners tell us something about the value of the relationship, meaning the following: meaning that those uh, partners that were allocated routes where we know that there's going to be worse weather or weather that is more uh, adverse. They are allocated because the legacy carrier expects the promises of laying out a flight to be fulfilled. And that tells me something or that tells us something about, uh, you know, routes where the promises are more costly to sustain are probably allocated to partners that the that have a larger value of the relationship. Okay. And so when I when you're asking the, the question of that you're asking about what do I mean, or what do we mean by re-optimization is very good in the sense because it, it's not straightforward. Right. So if I'm American Airlines and I have to fly 100 flights, I'm looking for the cheapest possible way to actually operate those 100 routes. I said flights, but they were talking about routes. As you said, some of them I'm going to choose to fly myself and others there, you know, I'm going to actually allocate to different partners and some partners I trust a lot. And some other partners, the relationship is not just is not there. And so what these guys do is that given the total value of the relationship with each one of the partners is that they allocate maybe 25 routes to one partner, 20 to another, 10 to another, okay? And how costly it is to fulfill the promises of uh, giving up a, a flight in bad weather in each one of those groups of 25, 20, and 10 routes that I decide to outsource tells me something about the value of the relationship. One thing that I want to emphasize here is that as you are have said at least once, if not more than once, a major and a regional that are engaged in a relational contract contract they that contract is not like route specific but it covers several routes at the same time. So the routes will not be interpreted as independent of each other and giving each of them way to a separate relational contract. Instead, there is a single contract that covers all the routes at the same time. So the value of the future relation is the value of future relation of maintaining the agreement on all the routes on which the mayor and regional are currently engaged together in. And, and in some sense, the cost is also the same. The cost of a adaptation for the regional is the cost of a giving a landing slot on every one of the routes that the regional is engaged with with that particular major at that point in time. Yes, we, that's an assumption that, that we have to make in our model basically not yielding on one route sort of breaks the relationship or breaks the agreement in, in all the routes. It's it's a way of giving us a, a low ball measure of, of what the relationship is, but that's that's the way that we understand it, correct? So if, if I understood it well, then you are saying, okay, well, there are some like sets of routes that are associated with specific relations for which the sum of the adaptation cost is like really, really high. Okay, for instance, one of them could involve flying between somewhere in Minnesota and somewhere in Michigan, okay, where it is snowy all the time. And, and what you were saying earlier, the likelihood that the regional has to adapt, okay, uh, and give away its laws because of 
the adverse weather condition is very high. And if we have decided, as you said, to fly together that route and many other routes as part of that set, that must mean that what we are getting out of the relation is very positive because the benefit has to be bigger than the cost. If the cost is high, the benefit has to be also also really high. Exactly. That's the argument. Exactly. What I don't understand now is how this tells us something about the change in the benefit after the 2008 financial crisis. Because clearly the relationship will be sustainable as long as the benefit is bigger than the cost, as we were saying here throughout. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that for some relations, the cost is very high tells us that the benefit is very high. But it doesn't tell us that the benefit is much higher than the cost. Just that it is, it could be an epsilon higher than the cost or it could be three times the cost. So now when under the 2008 financial crisis, the benefit goes down, it could go down and still be higher than the cost or it could go down and be below the cost. We haven't learned so much about the dynamics um, you know, from the levels. So they, uh, let me reword what you just said. We have no clue whether the incentive compatibility constraints are binding or not, or how how lax they are. And so, yes, we know that the crisis happens. We know that the value goes up, but we don't know how much each one of those relationships are actually going down, and whether they will go down enough that the that you actually need to re-optimize all of them, right? And so, it, and and we acknowledge this. We acknowledge that concern in 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 the paper. Paper, and that's why in when we draw our testable hypothesis, we basically use the language that those relationships that had lower value are going to be weakly more likely to those routes operated by outsourcing partners that have a lower value of relationship that which we've actually proxy by the total uh, adjustment cost uh, are going to be weakly more likely to stop being outsourced, right? And so and that's super important. Right, because it's exactly what you're saying. Why would this shock affect one or the other? If the incentive compatibility constraints were actually all very, very, very lax, right? So it's it's part of the hypothesis that this should actually happen if they're lax, but not too much, right? And and that's what that's what we find. Okay, so you were talking about uh, testable predictions. Can you tell us what is the main testable prediction from this uh, framework, this theoretical framework, about how uh, the financial crisis affected? whether the relationships with respect to specific route uh, survive or not. The testable prediction is that if a route was outsourced in 2006 to a regional partner that have a, had a high value of relationship for the legacy carrier, the probability of survival was going to be higher in, to, in 2010, right? And so we ran uh, OLS regressions where we try to control for everything that the airline economics literature controls for when they do market analysis. Here, market is basically a route, a direct route. And on top of this, we add our measure of relationship value. And what is this measure? You haven't quite referred to it just yet. So we basically, for each for each route, we calculate the probability of rain, the probability of snow, and the probability of freezing. And we basically look at, uh, look at each major regional relationship diet, and we take averages across all the routes that they operate together. 
together. That is going to give us an average of uh, rain, snow, and uh, freezing uh, number of freezing months at the relationship level across all the routes that they operate together. And that, as we were discussing a minute ago, is going to be a lower bound. Okay, it's going to give us a distribution, and that distribution is telling us something about the distribution of uh, relationship value across partners of uh, any given uh, legacy carrier. I have several questions here. The first one is that, just to emphasize, the use of the snow and the rain is uh, used as a proxy for the cost of adaptation on the regional side. Exactly. And that cost is itself a proxy for the value of the relation because the value has to be bigger than the cost. So the cost exactly. is a lower bound. Uh, for it's a lower bound, exactly. For the, for the value. So, so, so in, a, in a sense, the, the, the idea there is that if I fly only to Southern California and another regional flies only to New England, the fact that there's more rain and more snow and more freezing and the average number of freezing months in the routes ending in, in New England is higher tells me that the cost of adaptation of the second regional is actually higher. And that tells me that in order for those to operate and, and to see the adaptation that we see happening, it has to be that the relationship value of the second partner is actually higher than the relationship value of the first. This, the second question that I have is that for a specific route, which would be kind of the the unit of analysis in the empirical part, yes. the, the main variable that you have or the main independent variable is the amount of snow or rain, etc., but aggregated across all the routes of that relation. That is, you are taking seriously the idea that it's not what happens in this route, but what governs the relation of this route on the basis of the characteristics of the arrangement of the two parties across other routes as well, that really matters here for whether this route survives or not. Exactly. Right. So, and actually, this is something that we test empirically as well, because we actually include uh, weather, like route weather and network weather. And route weather does not matter for the survival. It's only, as you said, what happens everywhere else in the network that I operate as an outsourcing partner of my legacy carrier. The third question that I had uh, relates to one of the papers that you cite, which is the paper in 2009 by Forbes and Letterman. So as it happens, this is a paper that I teach to my corporate strategy students. And the, the focus of that paper there is not on the survival of the outsourcing relations, but instead on the vertical integration versus outsourcing decision. And they also have a sample of routes. And for every route, they hypothesize that if the cost of adaptation is higher, then vertical integration is relatively more attractive than outsourcing because the cost outsourcing is associated with obviously many costs. And the proxy that Forbes and Leatherman use for the cost of adaptation is also the amount of snow, the amount of rain, etc. But their, their prediction is that the higher the amount of snow, the less likely that outsourcing exists. Whereas your prediction is that the higher the amount of snow, the higher the likelihood that outsourcing survives once it has already existed. So the predictions here are kind of like the counter to each other, if you want. So I'm I'm gonna say that they're not, and I, let me explain a little bit because th this comment that you uh, that you're throwing now on the table is something that we got and we had to basically think very hard on on, on how to think about this. First of all, it's a it's a great paper to actually teach, a 2009 AER uh, paper. Uh, but I, I want to say that in the when they actually look at the industry. 
there was not much outsourcing, okay? So literally when they, you look at the industry, and this is, I think their data is from either 99 or to the year 2000, there was not much outsourcing going on in the US in the airline industry. So what does that mean? This means that when they actually look at their analysis, really the governance choice that airlines were contemplating is to either vertically integrate or outsource with almost no dependence, no relational dependence on, on what they did. There was some, but there was not that. It's And this is only an opinion. I don't think that there's a paper that actually shows this, is that uh, after the events of uh, 9-11, that a lot of airlines actually almost went bankrupt uh, because of their high uh, overhead costs that basically airlines decided to start basically leveraging outsourcing as a viable way to operate. So in the tra- in, in, in between their data and our data, there was almost a, an entire transformation of the governance use in the in the industry. And so the, the second thing, I want to say two more things on this. The second thing is that we condition, we basically, our sample is conditional on a route being outsourced in 2006. But we went back and said, all right, let's look at 2006. Let's bring in all the vertical integrated, uh, all, the, all the routes, whether they're vertically integrated or not. And we can also replicate the results in the sense that it is still true that those routes that have the worst weather, they're also more likely to be vertically integrated. Okay. Now, conditional on outsourcing, what we're saying is that there's this selection. And that selection is one that says, well, conditional outsourcing. So if I'm in a route where I don't have, I have like five or six uh, flights every day, and maybe I want to operate myself four of them, but I have two more that I have to basically outsource. Conditional on the fact that I don't have the capacity to run six full flights on my own on that route. Who do I choose to outsource those two flights in that route that has bad weather? I actually choose a partner that I value that I trust. Why? Because I know I'm going to be picking up that phone call. I'm going to be picking up the phone and making that phone call to, you know, to say, hey, the FAI shut us down again. Please give me that flight that you're operating. And basically what our paper says is, at first we thought, oh, maybe this is about, a, there's a bit of an inverse U-shape going on here, right? Which is interesting in terms, in terms of like when you go from very bad weather to very good weather, sort of, you know, that the, the, there's some disc, there's some non-monotonicity going on here in terms of, uh, in terms of outsourcing. But I think the safest way to think about this is that these are two complete, two completely different issues. Conditional outsourcing, we our model says that I will allocate those routes with worse weather to those uh, partners for which the expected value of the relationship is actually higher, right? So uh, I, I can see why people would say, hey, does this, does this actually go against what uh, Forbes and Leatherman say in their 2009 paper? And the actual, I think that the answer is no. These are completely two uh, different issues. Okay. So the prediction is that the higher the adaptation cost prior uh, to the shock, as proxied by the bad weather, the higher the likelihood that the route will continue being at source. What is the data that you have to test this prediction? So we use the data that uh, everybody else doing airlines uh, use. This is from the Department of Transportation of the United States. You can download 
you can download this data uh, from basically for free from the from the BTS website. And basically, we again we condition on a route being outsourced in 2006, and we look back at 2010 and see if that route is still outsourced to the same to the same uh, to the same partner. Okay, so just to be clear, you have a cross sections of routes and partnerships, correct? Like a, like an observation is a combination of a route and a partnership. Exactly. Okay. There are uh, 3,600 of those in your okay. data set. There are only 23 partnerships. Yes. Okay. So the, the independent variable, if you want, only takes 23 different values. Okay. And then there are 2,200 routes. And now on this cross-section, you are going to run a regression on a variable that you just referred to this called survival, which takes value one if the 2006 pre-existing uh, route partnership has survived by 2010 on these proxies for the weather, I was saying earlier, are the proxies for the adaptation cost and themselves pro proxies for the value of the relation. Exactly. This is the empirical specification. One question that I have here before we go into the results about these uh, proxy variables is the following. The, the whole reason that the weather matters is that it triggers this like FAA rationing of the landing slots. Okay. Exactly. So like but snow by itself is irrelevant here, at least through your theoretical framework, other than from the fact that it leads to the need for adaptation. So as it happens, I, I fly between London and Valencia a lot, and there is a big difference in terms of how busy these airports are, okay? So in Heathrow, even like an inch of rain is going to trigger like a chain reaction of delays because the airport is already at full capacity. Whereas Valencia is essentially free, you know? Like there is barely any taking off and landing. So even if it was to snow, which it actually never does there, but even if there was like adverse weather, you know, from being able to, um, from being able to like fly 60 uh, landings per hour, you will go down to 40, but the actual number on a regular day is 12. So therefore it's not really binding so much. What I mean to say here is, why not use directly the FAA rations of landing spots? Because that will seem like the most direct measure that you that you want to use. So first of all, you're totally right. Uh, earlier, when you talked about uh, a flight going from Minnesota to somewhere in Michigan, the first thing I thought is like, well, depending on which airport they're coming from, there's there's no congestion whatsoever, and so it doesn't matter whether what the FAA says, right? So we do a number of things there. The sec second of all, the the actual percentage that the FAA calls for rationing is unobservable, right? And uh, but what do what what we do have, and I think now is part of the robustness checks. It had to go into the appendix and whatnot because we actually wrote an FOIA and a Freedom of Information Act request asking for all the uh, asking for the number of uh, GDPs at a given airport. What is a GDP? A GDP is a ground delay program. The, 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 the FAA rationing the slots. The number of times that the FAA rations slots at a given airport uh, over a space of 10 years, right? To give a sense of how often does this happen, right? It's also important the fact that 
we don't our our routes are directional it's not the same to fly from chicago to san jose airport in the bay area than to go from san jose airport to chicago like the same as for you it's not the same to fly from heathrow to valencia than from valencia to heathrow right so we do all that and it's true that that there's going to be an observed heterogeneity and on a, let's call it expected congestion of the airport uh, across the routes or land airports right and so that's that's something that we try to take into account in our in our empirical analysis but you're, you're totally right so you know and if you actually look at the data of the FAA <clears throat> the top five airports with more uh, events they're basically huge airports uh, and, and that just tells you something that congestion is in, is incredibly relevant right and and the minute that you go down to like the top 50 airport in that ranking these are airports that that you and I probably will never be. Okay, so regression of survival on these proxies, what are the controls? We are controlling for, I mean, before we put in fixed effects and all that, we're basically controlling for the distance, we're controlling for whether the airport is a slot control or not, we are uh, controlling for the population at the end airport and at the rebel airport. And the fixed effects? And then at some point we start adding we start adding a route fix effects. We ask, we start adding uh, uh, major fix effects, major airline fix effects, uh, uh, regional airline fix effects. At some point we even go uh, a step beyond and we say, well, it's not the same United and Chicago than United and Los Angeles because Chicago actually plays a bigger role for United than it does for Los Angeles. So we start in we start uh, actually in interacting, putting fixed effects that are the results of interactions between airport and major fixed effects, and the same thing for regional fixed effects. So yeah. you have here a data set, a sample at the uh, route and partnership level. You can put route fixed effects, okay? And I will say that these are probably critical because the whole argument of the paper is it's what happens elsewhere rather than here that matters. Yeah. You cannot put partnership fixed effects because obviously they are yeah. perfectly collinear with the independent variable. But you put major fixed effects and regional fixed effects, taking advantage of the fact that a major may have a partnership with more than one regional and vice versa, a regional may have a partnership with more than one major. And Jordi, and this is what's super cool about this, in the same route. So you will have United flying from, say again, I'm repeating myself a lot, from say Chicago to San Francisco. And in that route, United operates their own airplanes right. and they and they might be using two or three partners, which basically means that I have the same major in the same route and the and I'm looking at the survival of three different partners, right? What are the main results? But the results are gonna tell me that that partner that I actually have that has uh, has in their network in 2006 a higher cost of adaptation, which is a my 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 lower bound of the relationship value, that partner with a higher relationship value has a higher probability of surviving, right? And that's conditional, that's within the little box of major carrier and route, right? So we're really comparing 
vis-a-vis. So this is not, I'm not comparing a, a partner that I fly in New England with a partner that I fly in, in Southern California. It's basically the same route, same legacy carrier, two, three different partners. And you see that the probability of surviving is actually much higher for those with higher relationship value. So here I have one last question about this. So I can see that hikers know leads to high gradation cost, et cetera, et cetera, as you were saying, higher amount of rent, high gradation cost, et cetera, et cetera. But when I look at the table, it turns out that the coefficient for another variable that you use, which is the number of freezing months, is negative. I would have expected that the amount of freezing that goes on in an airport, that also leads to a higher cost of adaptation. So it seems that at least the way that I would interpret this variable, the prediction there is counter to the coefficient that you find in the table. Or is it that my intuition is wrong? So I have have an answer for that that might not be pleasing but uh, so we here we when we choose these variables we basically follow uh, the Forbes and Leatherman article that you mentioned earlier right and in Forbes and Leatherman they have number amount of snow amount of rain and number of freezing months and I, and I think that we all agree as you said that the number of freezing months is not as clear as the man, the amount of rain and the amount of snow I said that it is very clear it's just in the opposite direction <laughs> no no, that, no but it, yeah, exactly but the, the, the reason the reasoning uh, there and and so the way that this is actually portrayed in Forbes and Leatherman is that when it's freezing the skies are clearer so it's easier to act, it's easier to actually fly so that there's less issues when does this matter really uh, you gotta think of the following the fourth airport the fourth airport with more uh, GDPs in the US is San Francisco. So fog and things like this are issues that can can create an FAA. So having more freezing months means less less issues like fog, mist, and things that uh, prevent visibility. So now that I think about this, in some sense, it doesn't really matter so much what the theoretical argument is, because whatever variable has come out in their previous paper as making outsourcing less likely, whatever variable it is, is a variable that under your framework seems to be associated with a higher cost of adaptation. Which is higher value. Exactly. Right. So, you know, in some sense, the validation of their coefficient is reason enough if you want. No, it was it was a situation and, and you know you know yourself uh, doing your research, right? Where we were basically going to use this other type of governance that happens in airlines and the Forbes and Leatherman paper is the paper to actually start. And these guys, uh, these, 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 uh, these two uh, authors had actually uh, have very strong evidence that those proxies for weather, okay, those proxies for weather tell you something about the cost of adaptation. We thought uh, I had a, I had a, I had a former class, a f- former student from when I was teaching at UC Santa Cruz, whose uh, father flies seven eight sevens for United. So we we talked with the, to, to this guy. He's like, does it matter when it rains? Does it matter when it snows? What about? And he basically told us, well, it's not the you know airplanes nowadays. You really need thunder to strike these guys down. Like it doesn't matter if it snows. It doesn't matter if it rains. It doesn't. It's it's uh, all these all all that these variables do is to is basically being correlated with a lot of other things, right? A lot of snow doesn't mean that when it snows you have to shut down the airport. It means a lot of snow means that suddenly there's a there's a blizzard. 
And that's basically right. When it rains, it's not that you start having a little bit of rain and you have to shut down. No, it's just that sometimes rain, it's actually coming down with hail, right? So, and that's basically what these variables basically capture uh, extreme occurrences, which we also have an exercise in the paper to, to look at the, at the worst possible values of rain and snow uh, over time. And the results are also, are also consistent with our main result. Basically. Very good. Thank you very much, Ricardo. Well, thank you, Jordi. My guest today has been Ricardo Hill. My name is Jordi Vanessi-Vidal, and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to some of the other papers that we discussed, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tanner.